to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, February 13th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. The American Museum of Natural History officially opened the Richard Gilder Graduate School, offering PhDs in comparative biology. This makes the American Museum the first museum in the U.S. to be able to grant PhDs, something we thought was a pretty cool thing to have in New York. This week, we're introducing you to the first five students to enter the Gilder Graduate Program. You'll hear about their research, the labs they're working in, and get a glimpse of what it's like to go to school at a museum every day. My name is Shana Montaneri, and I was born and raised in Connecticut, so only 60 miles north of New York City. And I went to college at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and I graduated in three years. And then I just graduated in 2008, August of 2008, actually, and then came directly to New York City and started at the Richard Gilder Graduate School. I can show you the paleontology prep lab. So that's where all the fossils that people bring in from field expeditions get prepared, which means where all the rock gets chipped off and they get cleaned up really nice because when you're out in the field you can't, you don't have the right tools to clean off everything perfectly uh, without breaking things and you know potentially ruining something really nice that you found. So we have a team of people that do it for us. Oh, cool. um, they're really, really good. So, so I study um, vertebrate paleobiology. So that's kind of a general term. So I'm interested in how things grow, like how organisms grow, vertebrates. So, and since I'm a paleontologist, things that are most likely extinct. But that can also be, I can study things that are extinct and all the way up to things that are still living and compare them and see if anything has changed in the way that they grow and the way that they lived. And I'm also interested in taking chemical techniques, so measuring concentrations of isotopes like oxygen and carbon in fossils and seeing what that can tell us about both the organism and the environment that it lived in. So I had previous experience at UNC doing this with um, invertebrates, clamshells. So I would do this kind of chemical testing on clamshells, and that would give me an idea of what the water temperature was when this clam was living, which was a 3 million-year-old fossil. So that gives me an idea of what the environment was like 3 million years ago. So I like to apply some of these similar sort of techniques to vertebrate fossils that are a little bit older, um, maybe like dinosaurs and early mammals. Yeah, I actually had emailed one of the curators here on a totally unrelated note. I had no idea. I didn't know anything about it. Um, since I'm the only person who didn't get a biology degree, I didn't really hear about this through any of my professors because they were geologists, so they didn't really know about it. But, yeah, so I emailed one of the curators here on a totally unrelated note, and you know, he answered my question and was like, oh, by the way, you might be interested in this program. And I read it, and I read the email, and that day I said, this is, good, this is perfect. And I sat down, and I wrote my personal statement, like, right there, right when I read that, because I was really excited, and I called my parents, and I was like, I think I found the perfect graduate program for me. Now they'll only accept me. So I, I wanted it from the second that I heard about it, so I went for yeah. it, and it ended up These working out. Little tiny tools under microscopes to, <laughs> to prepare things. We're doing like a tour. Doing a podcast <laughs> interview tour. I'm showing her the lab. What are you doing? Um, I'm working on preparing this jaw. A jaw? A jaw of what? Close cousin of Protoceratops. Oh, a dinosaur. Mm -hmm. Really? Is that a Mm -hmm. real dinosaur bone? Yes. (laughs) From Mongolia. You can see over here the the occlusal surface of the teeth. Wow. So these are all teeth that are growing in as as these baby teeth are falling out. 
and you can actually see that there's new ones forming inside of the jaw. That's in incredible. Here. So that's the actual fossilized mm -hmm. bone. Mm -hmm. There's a lower jaw with roots all in it. Not everybody gets to touch a dinosaur bone every no. day. That's crazy. <laughs> now these wow. are not really nice specimens from Mongolia. You get really, really wow. well-preserved things like this that are worth spending a lot of time preparing because they're really special. So all the, awesome. my friends Thanks. and family know the museum. You know, they know of it and they know the night at the museum and the movies and everything. And they know it from TV and movies and books. And so it's kind of this place that you know, people work there, people research there. I thought it was just this awesome place to go visit New York City, but it's so much more than that. And so when I explain to them all the things that we do here, they're even more amazed because it's cool enough being able to come here every day and go to school here and, you know, be here when it's closed and whenever we want to. So it, that's, that's cool enough as it is. Hi, I'm Sebastian Quist. I guess judging from my last name, you can tell that I'm not American. I was born and raised in Sweden and I got my bachelor's in marine biology and my master's in biology from the University of Gothenburg. Right, so this is part of the invertebrate collection. And in here you've got basically formalin and ethanol preserved specimens of, of most of the different families or, or phylums as they call them. Um, in the invertebrate world. In Sweden, I studied mostly earthworms and marine earthworms and their evolutionary relationships and kind of how they speciate and a bit of their ecology. Coming to the museum, I hope to work on both earthworms and also uh, a bit about leeches, hopefully. So you've got crustaceans, which are, um, you know, crabs and shrimps, basically. All kinds of weird worms and... Can we look inside one of these? Sure, absolutely. Oh, they're really little. Yeah, these are quite small. I'll show you some bigger ones later on, though. So these kind of look like, ooh. ooh wow. <laughs> so this is a giant, this is, this is a giant earthworm. <laughs> and, uh, okay, so we're looking, there's a big white lockers, floor to ceiling, and now we've pulled out giant earthworms. Giant being, like, how would you describe these giant earthworms? Um, well, this worm is probably about, I'd say, 30 centimeters long, so about a foot roughly. They're quite thick. This, well, this particular genus is quite cool, actually, because it can live in the water systems of humans. So my advisor in Sweden has twice got these worms coming out of his shower, um, and they've kind of fallen in onto his head. It's quite disgusting, but uh, it's, a, it's a cool genus. So he's got them falling into his hair when he's taking a shower. So this, um, this particular species is bigger than most of the species within the genus. It is by far the biggest earthworm I've ever seen. Yeah. There's a giant earthworm in, in Australia that grows to about two feet, which is quite weird. Um, wow, so you've got, you really do have a bazillion specimens in here. Yeah, so this, and, and like I said, this is only part of the invert collection. So um, when you're studying, do you come in here a lot, or what? how often do you, people use these specimens? Or? Well, I would say that people rarely use these specimens. As far as me personally, I've been in here quite a few times. Just basically because I like the area, uh, I need to kind of get going on my research and, and check out what, the, what kind of specimens that the museum has. And plus, what we're coming up to now is a big aluminum, um, I guess, box. It's about, uh, I'd say, three meters long and about a meter and a half wide. And this is one of the main reasons why I come up here is because um, I want to show all my friends that come and people, my, like my, when my family comes, I want to show them the, the giant squid. Oh, oh my God, is this yeah, where the so, so what I need you to do is just don't take, take a deep breath because it's ethanol preserved. So if you take a deep breath, you might get struck. 
It's a bit smelly, but so Holy yeah. This is, cow. this is one of the um, I should say one of the few specimens of of giant squid in the world. Not too many people have seen uh, have seen the giant squid. They Holy actually they only found. Uh, the first live one they found about two years ago. So this is the the mythical animal that lives really deep down. And this particular specimen was, before it was preserved, without the tentacles, so just the main body was 25 feet long. Right now it's, it's pulled so itself it together. Shrinks? So it shrinks? Yeah. It shrinks in the ethanol, yeah, sure. Because the cells kind of throw out the water because of the ethanol. The good thing about preserving it in ethanol is that the um, the DNA is mm. is preserved. So people have taken tissue samples and... and um, you know, sequenced the DNA of the critter and kind of compared it in an evolutionary sense to, to its congeners, so um, to other squids and other octopi. Oh my god, that was really impressive. Watch your fingers. My name is Zach Baldwin. I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Washington in Seattle in fisheries and evolutionary biology. When I was in Seattle, I worked with an ichthyologist at the University of Washington and through him, I heard about the program, but my interests kind of developed through doing work in fisheries and comparative biology and evolutionary biology and studying those at the University of Washington. So what interests you about fish? <laughs> um, uh, I guess I came to fish to be interested in fish. Originally, I was kind of interested by the diversity of colors and patterns and forms that they have. They're incredibly diverse, almost 30,000 described species, and almost every, they inhabit almost every known ecosystem. So they're really, really diverse, and that diversity kind of we're attracted me. Fish for long term. Um, we're going to take a left here. Left. Yes, the fish is out. Nice. So we're in a, a little lab that has got lots of sunlight, and there are some gigantic specimens on the counter. So I work on a variety of deep sea organisms. These are deep sea fishes, so they live between about 300 and 1,500 meters under the ocean. And I work on a are variety. Are you going to take it out? I'll take it out. <laughs> Wait, before we take it ooh, out, how big is it? So this is about a foot and a half long, if you want to work in English, about okay. 300 millimeters. Are you going to use foot. your fingers? Yeah. Oh my god, you are. In Seattle, I developed an interest in what we would call, I guess, kind of zoology, comparative biology, but I have some interests in more, in more applied sciences such as conservation biology and evolutionary biology, and this program, I think, will do a good job in addressing both the kind of more classical zoology and bringing it up to the modern times with evolutionary biology, conservation. The museum's just a great resource for that. We have the conservation group here. We have a number of well-known scientists here, so it's just kind of a good place to bring it all together. So, this is a, called a drag, black dragonfish, rightfully so, and I've got several new species I'm describing right now of this, but they've, they're really neat though because they have, so these are bioluminescent organs behind the eye. What does that mean? So it produces light. They use, uh, it's hypothesized, there's no direct observation of it, but it's hypothesized that they use it in species communication and maybe seeing their prey. but. In this group, each of the species has kind of a different uh, arrangement behind the eye. But then they also have this bioluminescent organ on the chin. It's like a long beard, kind of. Kind of, yeah. It's called a barbel. You can't see it on this, but there's lights all down the body called photophores. How old is this specimen? The specimen was collected in 
probably this is probably about five to ten years old. It's from New Zealand. In ichthyology and other collections too, but I think we do it a lot more. We send fishes kind of all over the world, like interlibrary loan, because each collection is generally specialized more in the regions that curators work in, or that the region where it's located. So we have a lot of Western Atlantic material at the American Museum, but I work on deep sea stuff that lives all over the world. So stuff comes from New Zealand, Australia, Japan, South Africa, England. So it's these fishes travel a lot. <laughs> One of the other big attractions, which I forgot to mention for this program, and something I'm looking forward to is the kind of flexibility and freedom. A lot of graduate programs, you enter it and you take classes for two full years sometimes. Columbia, I think, is three. There's not a lot of extra time to do your work in the initial period, and I think all of us came in with a pretty good sense of roughly where we want to head with our dissertation. So this program is wonderful then that we can just get going, and I'm excited to have three, three and a half years of just solid time to work and produce. My name is Antonia Florio, and I grew up in Astoria, Queens, so I'm from New York City. I just graduated college last May, and I went to um, City College uptown. So how did you find out about the Gilder Graduate School? Everyone always asks me this, and I tell the same story because it's one of my favorite stories. So my, um, it was, you know, like my, I think, sophomore year of college, and I wasn't sure. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I might have taken a year off, and my parents were really like, you shouldn't take a year off, you should go to grad school. And then my dad found this small clipping in the New York Times that said they'd just gotten funding for graduate school and that they were studying exactly what I told them I wanted to study. And then ever since, and I read it and I was like, all right, I guess now I'll, I'll go to grad school right now. <laughs> and then I found it and I was like, that's a perfect match and I can't let it pass up. So I'm probably going to study chameleons in Madagascar and speciation. So maybe below a species level to see how one there's a complex, this one um, species group for, for lateralis, and to see, it's probably a complex of many species, but um, and that's what people have been saying, you know, past articles, but not, it's never been really studied. So to study those populations and to see if there is enough divergence that they could actually be a complex of many different species. Uh, my name is Brian Falk. I grew up in Boise, Idaho, and I did my undergraduate studies at Portland State University in Oregon. Uh, it was general biology. I did work in a plant systematics lab, working on how plants in the iris family are related to one another. Um, and I also spent a semester in Costa Rica um, studying tropical biology. And I also did some work on lizard parasites there, and that's what I'm studying here now. So it's warm because of all this sun, yes. but we can head in here first. Each of the, the lab is partitioned into different different rooms to keep contamination down. So what we're doing basically here is that we're extracting DNA, we're isolating DNA, and then we're amplifying it. We're making many copies and then we use that information to reconstruct histories of whatever organisms we're working on. So this is where we extract the DNA. And there's, it's set up on these different benches so that some people work on specimens that are from museums so that they're very old. Sometimes I'll do very old bone specimens there. Um, and then there are benches, of course, for the, the contemporary or modern samples. So all these freezers are full of many, many tubes of, of little pieces of tissues that, that might oh be my pieces gosh. Of, of muscle or liver or something like that. And from that, about the size, it's like half the size of an uncooked rice grain, then we can extract DNA and, and get lots and lots of information. When you tell people that you're doing your PhD at the American Museum of Natural History, what do they say? Well, they're 
confused um, because it's not, this is the first accredited museum in the Western Hemisphere to have a PhD program. And so that's our next question there, like actually at the museum, you have classes at the museum and yes, our, our, the curators are also professors, they're faculty. So people are intrigued and people that have been to the museum and know the museum's reputation are really excited about it. This is uh, one of the older thermocyclers, but we have a few of these thermocycler banks. So that's what they use to, to just copy the DNA over and over and over again. So you get orders of magnitude greater numbers of, of DNA from what you started with. So will you be spending a lot of time in here? Yeah, this is where I spend most of my time. And so there's, I mean, basically the students here and, and many scientists are historians. And so we have like toolkits or different things that we use to, to reconstruct history. And so DNA, um, especially in the last couple of decades, has sort of dominated the types of tools that we use. For that. My general interests are in herpetology. So that's reptiles and amphibians, also biogeography. So how diversity in, in species are distributed um, across the landscape and parasites and coevolution. So my research project is, as I'm thinking about it now, is going to be comparing parasites in one host species and a group of lizards that live in the Caribbean and comparing how we know a lot about how the lizards evolved and their speciation and biogeographic patterns, but we don't know very much about parasites. And so that my project will be to, to help us understand more about how parasites coevolve with their hosts. We do things like um, clone pieces of DNA, so we, we actually insert DNA into, into bacteria and then grow the colonies of bacteria. So in here we've got a robot that'll pick the colonies. There's a robot to, to automate some other procedures we do, and then this is the sequencer. So this is um, I mean, set up, we can really, it's called like a high throughput lab, so we can, we can get a lot of DNA and sequence data produced in one day and they're actually in the, the other two labs that they have at the museum have sequencers just like this so the potential for data gathering is really high. Yeah how does this kind of lab facility compare to I don't know other Oh it's world-class and that was one of one of the primary reasons for me wanting to study here because the facilities are are amazing. Yeah well and I would have no idea that they had all of this there's a lot going on. So we're on the eighth floor now, and if you count the lower level, there are nine floors of the museum, and only the first floor are, are what the public sees. And so there's a lot going on behind the scenes, and a lot of that is, is scientific research. The student-faculty ratio is really nice and that the classes are small. I don't think we've had a class with more than nine students. We're learning from, from people at the top of their field, and, and because we have that close interaction with them, and because they're such experts, the classes have been fantastic. And Contrary to what most people think, the curators here have taught classes before because there, there is already a large student body of graduate students from other institutions like City University of New York and, and Columbia. So many of them have already been teaching classes for those students. These first five Gilder graduate students have four years of research ahead of them, but we plan to check in with them every so often to see how their work progresses. For Science in the City, I'm Elena Rangi. Do you love Science in the City podcasts? There are a couple ways you can show your support. First, you could become a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. You can do that by going online at www.nias.org. Second, get your name and advertising in a Science in the City podcast by sponsoring one. For more information, email Adrian Burke at a-b-u-r-k-e at nyas.org. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story every week downloaded automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science in the City in your iTunes search bar. If you have any questions or comments about our show, we would love your feedback. 
Please send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. And don't forget to check us out online, scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.